of the increase in methane emissions worldwide over the last 10 years, one third of that has come from fracking in America. And methane accounts has an 87 times higher global warming potential than carbon dioxide that when you import methane into Ireland, it's 44% dirtier than coal. So you might as well keep, if you think you're going to do something for the climate, you could keep Money Point coal burning power station open in Clare instead of closing that and bringing in frac gas. Welcome to another episode of the Human Rights Podcast for the Irish Centre for Human Rights at NUI Galway. The opening clip you've just heard was taken from an interview conducted with Johnny McElligot, a leading member of Safety Before LNG. In 2017, Ireland became the third European country to ban onshore fracking. Pervasive public concern about the environmental and health risks were the catalyst for the ban, along with a relentless campaign on behalf of grassroots movements throughout Ireland. Despite this milestone marking a crucial turning point, the anti-fracking movement is by no means at rest. The battle against the importation of fracked gas and the construction of LNG terminals continues throughout Ireland. I'm Sophie Fitzpatrick and today I'm joined by my colleagues Cassie Roddy Molyneux and Colin Kearney to investigate the ongoing anti-fracked gas movement as part of our work for the International Human Rights Clinic. In today's episodes we hear from activists from some of the most prominent campaigns in Ireland and also from Physicians for Social Responsibility in Pennsylvania. However, to begin, let's return to our interview with Johnny. Johnny McElligot is a dynamic and passionate advocate from North Kerry, who has been at the forefront of the battle against the construction of LNG terminals on the Shannon Estuary since 2007, and more recently has spoken out against the importation of frack gas on a national level. To start off, I'd just like you to talk a little bit about how you got involved with Safety Before LNG, what your background is, and what Safety Before LNG was set up to do. Well, I'm from the local area. I was living with my aunt and uncle who were living adjacent to the site in 2007. Uh, my aunt was high dependency, multiple sclerosis, so I was minding her. So this project came along and people said, oh, this is going to be great. It was a beautiful brochure saying we're going to bring in uh, gas and it's extremely safe and it will bring lots of jobs and we'll have a boom in North Kerry and it's just going to be a great project. And I said, well, this sounds very interesting. And I was all for it initially. So as I understand, when the plans for the LNG terminal first were unearthed in the local area, there was an interesting campaign to promote it on behalf of Shannon LNG. So for instance, they held that LNG was an environmentally friendly fossil fuel. And in the case that a leak occurred, the gas would quickly dissipate because it was lighter than air. However, more recently, scientific evidence has suggested that any gas leaked will actually have major adverse effects on the environment. Could you explain how the science contradicts what Shannon LNG claimed? Well, they started repeating what was like an urban myth that if gas LNG, which is actually heavier than air, if it leaks from one of these tanks, which were going to be 20 storeys high, wider than the width of Croke Park, each of them four tanks, that if they leaked, it would just evaporate rapidly. And that all sounds so nice, but the Shannon Estuary, we're a special area of conservation, the bottlenose dolphins, 164 bottlenose dolphins in the estuary. It's um, it's a very sensitive ecosystem there, lots of mud flats. So the from the whole food chain from the bottom up, it's very sensitive. So people always have this image like, oh, if there's an oil disaster, would you have, you know, oil slicks in the estuary? But the problem was that um, provide natural gas is cooled uh, gas into liquid form, and it's actually heavier than air. And if there's a leak, it travels up to 12 kilometers, which is the point at which it's no longer inflammable. So to be flammable, liquefied natural gas would need to be have between 5 and 15% oxygen, and then it would become ignitable if it, if it met an ignition source. So the whole idea really, the story that I was really telling, going back all these years, like over 12 years of a campaign, we realized there's a template that's created. And it's when Mark Ruffalo, you know, the famous actor, when he kind of said, uh, you know, the gas companies that are fracking in the States, they lie and they cheat and they obfuscate. And I was thinking, actually, that's kind of ringing a bell. Because when we went back to square one, the real problem that happened was, you know, when you were all for the project initially, we were saying, God, this sounds great. When somebody tells a lie and when there's a lie that's told, it's how do you react when someone tells a lie? Do you ignore it or do you actually challenge it? So it's very important that going back over the 12 years, we realize now they lied from the beginning. That was the first lie. And that's what really causes the problem, that once they lie, you lose trust and you start to challenge it. 
it turned out they also the template was that they they targeted public opinion very strongly. They took uh, groups uh, from three different uh, to three different areas: the Milford Haven, Zeebrugge, and Barcelona to visit LNG terminals there. Um, the oil company took them out and put them up in five-star hotels. One of them was seen dancing at the tables, singing that he thought the next stop would be Hawaii. They paid fifteen hundred euros, from what I can remember, for the local club to a local hall to use it for a few hours. We reached out to Shannon LNG but they did not respond to our request for comment. And up to now, they've spent about 60 million euros on the project, but they've, they have not uh, done any bit of construction whatsoever. So all that money over the years has gone to engineers, lawyers, people to do environmental studies. And I, I can't say that they're wrong, the studies, but these people form opinion. And that is the process that we have used over these years. You target opinion farmers, and the most potent ones against us have always been... Uh, the two local uh, radio stations, Radio Kerry, uh, the radio station and the local newspaper, the Kerryman. So they say that they give the other point of view, but they never really have. And they're always challenging you. We reached out to the Kerryman newspaper and to Radio Kerry. The Kerryman newspaper did not reply, and Radio Kerry said that they give a forum for all views, and their reporting has always been fair. And any politician then that spoke out against fact, the, the, the import terminal in North Kerry, they wouldn't get elected. It's like a group think they're gone into. And it, the real problem that we've realised now over the years is that the politicians have proposed nothing new for the area other than all their eggs in the one basket of this terminal, which they think is going to bring lots of jobs. And uh, we realised that they lied in the beginning as well about the jobs. They said there would be 350 jobs. And then it kind of went up to 1,000 because it, 350 didn't sound enough because it would be just a construction boom for the four years that it would be going on. And over the years, we've started challenging more things. And when it came on this new idea to bring in frack gas from the States, that's when the, another set of lies started. And I hate calling them lies, but I just call a spade a spade. The company said we wouldn't be, you know, uh, when Jean-Claude Juncker went to the, uh, Washington on the 25th of July 2018, and he made an announcement with uh, President Trump that they were going to import gas into Europe, mm-hmm. that America has got lots of gas. And Jean-Claude Juncker said that uh, we are going to import your gas and let this be a message for others. You said about the gas, obviously, is being imported from the USA, from Pennsylvania. So as you mentioned, Mike Ruffalo, he was one of the celebrities, as well as Cher and Pierce Brosnan, which obviously has gathered a bit of media attention. But he spoke out more about the effects for the community where the fracking is happening. So even though... Obviously, there's going to be negative impacts for us here in Ireland. But what about for the community across the pond? Could you talk a little bit about how it's going to affect them? You see, there's a huge problem of uh, a just transition. You know, uh, we ban fracking in Ireland because uh, of the not only the climate impacts, but the local impacts, the pollution, the methane poisoning, the the, 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 the pollution of the waters, there's huge growth in cancers. So we ban fracking in Ireland for the reason for, for both environment and health reasons. But suddenly now we're able to say, OK, it's bad in Ireland, but uh, let's import it from America. Mm-hmm. And those same problems are happening in, in America. And so the problem is, um, the idea is about carbon leakage and non-territorial emissions. We're allowed, but, but it's the same with pollution and degradation of other communities. So it's a little hypocritical. Outside of the European Union. We're trying to say we're super clean here, we're doing everything, but we only have to assess the impacts on the environment in Europe. So when Europe is buying in gas, they just consider it gas is gas, but they are not looking at their energy source and the consequence on rural communities and often they put them in in poorer areas, poorer neighbourhoods, people that don't can't organise to fight. And that's the that's the real health consequences. So Mark Ruffalo and the Pennsylvania people and the physicians against that are highlighting all the health Mm -hmm. impacts of what is actually happening. They're highlighting from what they're seeing on the ground. They're highlighting what is happening there, what could have been happening in Ireland if we didn't ban fracking in 2017. And they're saying by you creating a methane, a market for methane in Europe, you're increasing the amount of fracking that will happen in the States because we're creating new markets abroad. Like initially, they gave the excuse in America that 10 years ago, America was importing gas. And, you know, they were saying, dig a well, bring a soldier home because they have energy security and energy independence. But now they've dug about, I think, 1.7 million wells in the States. And uh, they, they, they like to throw away wells, really. It's, you have to go down about a kilometre into the ground. You break up all the shale. Um, you use loads of water, lots of chemicals. 
and um, after about a year and sand, sand to keep the cracks on the shale or the pencil open and that allows the gas to seep up but after about a year they're finished or two years and then you just cap it with cement but a very basic concept is when you pour cement over a well when it dries it shrinks and that causes leakage so the leakage is coming from a kilometre down it comes through the water table or up into the air and that causes all sorts of problems health wise and everything else but they're throwaway wells, but now they're digging so many wells that now they've got a glut of gas in America, so now they can export it. And that is the real problem. So people said, okay, we suffer to bring in frack gas, for frack gas to have energy independence, you know, stop our soldiers dying, bring our boys home. But now why are we making so much of it? What is the what is the moral argument to allow us to, to kill people in America? To better understand the impacts of fracking, on local communities in source countries, we spoke with Tammy Murphy, an activist from the U.S. who works as Medical Advocacy Director for Physicians for Social Responsibility for Pennsylvania. Based out of Philadelphia, Tammy organizes healthcare providers throughout the state to speak out about the health impacts of the unconventional gas development industry. She also works extensively with Fenceline community members, grassroots coalitions, and policymakers to combat the negative impacts of fracking. Here's Tammy. When a community allows the unconventional gas development industry to operate, the first thing that is fractured is the community itself. Some benefit directly from the industry in terms of jobs and money from leasing their land, while others may benefit indirectly by the generation of tax revenues and fees. What initially appears promising is often devastating in the long term, as both individuals and local municipalities experience the industry as part of a boom and bust cycle. Fracking usually occurs in rural and frequently impoverished areas that suddenly face a rapid influx of workers, traffic, and industrial equipment dramatically alter the environment, quite literally overnight. With this sudden change in the community, many residents are harmed both directly and indirectly in terms of health impacts and an experience of physical or emotional displacement from their former way of life. Symptoms reported by residents living near gas drilling sites include increased skin rashes, nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, difficulty breathing, coughs, nosebleeds, anxiety and stress, headaches, dizziness, eye and throat irritation, and increased rates of hospitalization and numbers of patients with heart and skin conditions, as well as tumors and neurological conditions, chronic rhinositis, fatigue symptoms, and asthma exacerbations. Studies are examining the correlation between increased cases of cancer clusters and other serious long-term and life-threatening diseases and the exposure to radioactive and carcinogenic material associated with the fracking industry. Now back to Johnny's interview. I suppose the argument that um, people over here in Ireland then are raising in favour of the LNG terminal going ahead is kind of founded in the need for energy security and diversity of sources. However, in reality, is there any form of energy security that would actually come from the Shannon LNG project? And on the other hand, is the prospect of a fossil fuel free Ireland actually feasible? Well, we are taking it at the first stage, which says that... um, you know, gas is a transitional fuel, is what the European Commission and the government and our energy policy is based on that. But if it's a transitional fuel, we are already in the transition. We have Corrib, which is going to last for 12 to 15 years, which is the latest figures that were released by the none other than the managing director of Gas Networks Ireland, when he said there in October that we have 12 to 15 years. The Taoiseach and the Dáil said, oh, we're running out rapidly out of Corrib. That was misleading the doll. The managing director also of Gas Networks Ireland, he also said that we have energy security. We have a robust system because the Taoiseach said if the interconnector fails within the UK, that's all we have. But in actual fact, we have two interconnectors that are completely independent since December of last year at a cost of 100 million. If one breaks down, we have the other. Taoiseach Viradkar's office did not respond to our request for comment. And so we have two interconnectors and we have Corrup. We have three sources of gas into the country. We have access to the same diversity of supply of gas as the UK has. We're the one gas market. 
So there's some kind of nationalism that's kind of used as to say we need to be independent and have energy security, but we already have it. We're in the transition. So the idea of building an infrastructure for up to 1 billion euros, 600 million for the terminal, 400 million for the power station next to it, why would you spend a billion euros on infrastructure that will have to be there for the next 40 years? Because when companies build, they have an expectation of profit and they will go looking for their pound of flesh if we strand those assets. So we are actually in our energy security now. We have it. We're in the transition. And that is the issue. Irrespective of the whole concept of the fact that what you will be bringing in would be more detrimental to the climate because it's methane leakage. Back to Mark Ruffalo again, and he said something very interesting. And he said, you know, why would you be sending millions and millions and millions of uh, euros over to America to buy gas from America to make them richer, more or less? You know, besides, if you use that amount of money to create more renewable energy in Ireland, you're creating jobs rather than just making us uh, being another market for methane where we get no feedback, doesn't it? There's no investment in long term jobs. It's or... not sustainable. Energy security is often cited in the media as a key argument in favour of the development of LNG infrastructure. We reached out to Jessie Dolliver from Not Here, Not Anywhere and asked her if she could envision any alternative feasible routes to achieving energy security. Jessie is currently completing a research master's on blue carbon in Trinity College Dublin and is passionate about making the science behind climate change accessible to all. So energy security is a topic often mentioned in media by members of the Irish Offshore Operators Association, who are the people that discover and sell fossil fuels off the coast of Ireland. They have been very vocal that our position as an island makes us vulnerable in terms of energy security, and honestly, I do think that is fear-mongering. If we look at the facts, we can get a better impression of this, because it is in certain people's interest to manipulate the public and our fear of literally keeping the lights on. So, first of all, let's address the, the post-Brexit, no-deal Brexit, hard Brexit fear that gas from the UK will stop flowing. We have known for years that even in the case of a no-deal Brexit, trade with Britain in both electricity and gas will continue as normal. We have a single electricity market, or SEM, which will continue to operate, and Prisma, which is the software for cross-border trade in gas, uh, will continue to be used. These things are agreements between Ireland and the UK and they continue to run regardless of European Union management. Gas Networks Ireland, who is the operator of Ireland's gas network, repeatedly tells us that any Brexit will not impact Ireland's security of gas supply. Uh, One thing is certain, which is that the Brexit panic and the fear of accessing gas from the UK does not legitimise or justify further exploration for oil in Ireland, which is just the most backwards, nonsensical logic, but that is actually what some industry heads have tried to propose. But we also have to be honest, we aren't energy sovereign or independent by any means, and we do import half our gas from Britain. We should work towards having an indigenous energy supply, which is logical, but we need to turn to the assets which we actually have. We don't have abundant oil and gas reserves, as unfortunate exploration companies hit not liquid gold, but salt water well after salt water well. They just keep looking and not finding anything. But we do have wind and wave and solar technology. However, we need to be honest about this too. If renewables are to be a viable alternative to carbon-based energy systems, we need to fund improved battery storage and local energy generation. We have evidence that we can transition to a low-carbon economy. Academic research dating back to 2014 found that theoretically Ireland's actual grid could run entirely on renewable energy uh, given appropriate support. But we aren't there yet. And frankly, we're just no longer in an age where we can depend upon this always-on, always-available energy supply of fossil fuel to power our economy and our homes. Everything is changing, and if we want that type of indigenous and dependable energy supply, we will need to build it from the ground up, starting as soon as possible. I'll hand you over to Cassie now to discuss further your work, particularly the complaints that you've made. Thank you so much. And I'm sure most of our listeners would agree that there's a real need to invest in more renewable energy sources. The European Commission confirmed that the Shannon LNG gas terminal is going to be included among 55 fossil fuel projects on the EU's latest list of priority energy projects, which is also known as the PCI list. And this list is now going to go before the European Parliament, where MEPs will have two months to examine it. 
I'm wondering, can you just explain to our listeners very briefly, why is it so significant for a project to be listed on it? And also whether you think there's any chance of it being removed from the list at this stage? Yeah, well, the the importance of the PCI list is that um, it sets the framework for development consent. So any project that's on the PCI list in simple language has to be considered as being in the overriding public interest from a planning permission perspective, from an energy perspective in the country, that your infrastructure funds, uh, development of the gas infrastructure, that has to get top priority. So you're saying that this type of energy project has to come before everything else. That's what's really is the real key to this. The second thing is that, um, you know, they're planning to build the LNG terminal on the Shannon Estuary, which is a special area of conservation. If you're going to damage the environment when you go for planning permission, if you cannot mitigate those uh, um, that damage to the environment by damaging the SAC area, you're allowed to damage it as much as you want if it is in the overriding public interest. So it is like a preliminary plan, an outline planning permission. And Minister Richard Bruton in the Dáil, calling a spade a spade again, I also think he misled the Dáil because he said that the only advantage in the PCI accreditation is that they're um, able to apply for funding. But the funding is not the issue. That's a smoke smoke screen. The minister's office declined the opportunity to respond in our request for comment. The real issue is the actual accreditation because in the, the Lisbon Treaty, TFEU, we can determine as a member state, we can determine our own energy mix. So we can say we're allowed to have frack gas or we can have nuclear power. Uh, It's not a European Commission uh, function over a member state function. But if you allow your project in Ireland to go on that PCI list, it becomes a European project. And the European Commission can then say, you must build this. You must build the the gas pipeline that goes next to it. You must give it uh, funding. Maybe not funding, but you, you, you have to consider it. And so it is so much more than just the status. And if they don't get PCI accreditation, uh, that project won't go ahead. And this really leads me to the complaint that you've made recently to the European Ombudsman about the Shannon LNG project. And could you just tell our listeners what this relates to? Right. Uh, there's a few aspects to it, but the whole idea, it goes back to really, is that uh, for 12 years we were, we have been saying that an energy plan, you know, whether you want to develop an energy hub in southern shores of the Shannon Estuary, any energy plan would require a strategic environmental assessment, an SEA, mm-hmm. under the SEA directive. An SEA requires you, under Article 5, I think, to assess reasonable alternatives. So you, you might say, if you're bringing in frack gas, maybe we should be doing nuclear power. We should assess the alternatives before we decide this is going to be the plan. And so the, um, the problem is that Jean-Claude Juncker and President Trump in, in July last year, they decided that uh, they're going to import gas from America into Europe. And we're going to build 14 terminals. We're, we're, we're funding 14 terminals, LNG terminals in Europe to import them. So that's actually an energy plan, because if someone says we're going to bring in some gas from America, which is energy, huge amount of energy, we're going to give special status, planning status to these projects, these LNG terminals that will import it. But they have not said that it's actually an energy plan because the real problem is what we found out is the technique that's used both by the European Commission and by by Ireland as a country is that you have a silent policy and a silent plan and you go straight to projects. So you always discuss projects of common interest, a project as if it's not part of a plan. A plan requires assessment, oversight, studies, public consultation, part of the white paper, the green paper. It requires buy-in from the community. So that's the whole problem is we're saying the energy plan to import gas from America is an energy plan that should have an SEA. We're saying that Ireland should, before they approved Shannon LNG going on the Projects of Common Interest list into Europe, we should have done a strategic assessment for that specific decision. The European Commission, we complained that when they looked at that complaint about us saying that Ireland did not do an SEA or a proper um, public consultation on deciding to put these projects on the list of projects of common interest, the European Commission said, oh, yeah, but they've done an SEA. But in actual fact, they did an SEA of the county development plan, which had nothing to do with Shannon LNG or frack gas or anything at all. So they, they picked an SEA from somewhere else and said that was it. So they turned a blind eye. And then the fourth complaint we have with the European Commission now is that the European Commission itself admitted 
and even the Deputy Director General of DG Energy, Klaus-Dieter Borschacht, admitted that they never assessed the emissions, the sustainability criteria of the parties of common interest. So you guys are all into law. You're allowed to make a bad decision if you follow the procedures and you tick all the boxes. But if, if you're obliged by the PCI directive to, when you're deciding these projects of common interest, if you're supposed to assess the sustainability and you decide, well, we won't do that because all gas projects are the same, they, did, they decided they weren't going to look at it. And he admitted it that they made a mistake, that it was um, a failing and it was something they overlooked. But they will get it better for the next PCI list in two years' time. But we can all turn a blind eye to this list this time. That's a problem. That means they've broken their own rules and there's such political influence and shenanigans going on with this whole PCI process that that's what the subject of the complaint is. So you complain to the Commission, first of all, for maladministration on those four points and now it's gone to the European Commission Ombudsman. Now, it doesn't really have teeth, but... It, it's soft. It's a soft complaint. You know, we could follow it on further with other uh, challenges, but then you're getting into the inequality of arms. So what we're doing really is going back to the very beginning of the conversation when we were saying it's like a dialectic approach to, to debate that you're not only just working on spin, but you're also looking at the ethics and the, and, uh, and the logic uh, of a debate. And we're looking for the truth. It's, a, it's a, a truth based campaign that we're running. You know, tell the truth. It sounds like very simple. Your mother would tell you, tell the truth when you're young. So all we can do is say we're following the procedures as far as we can go. And we're saying the emperor is not wearing any clothes. You, you must look at this. Why are you not doing it? And but we can only take that so far. I understand. Thank you. And I really must say, I found those comments from the Deputy Director General of DG Energy incredible to read. And I think they really do help to bolster the argument that you're making. And just to continue on from that, I know that one of the issues that you're very concerned with in respect to this LNG project relates to the lack of consultation. Would you mind telling us a bit about that? Well, I think everybody in all the different campaigns that I've been looking at, there is a big problem in in environmental law where you're obliged to have public consultation, but public consultation and just informing people of what you're actually going to do, where you don't have to pay any attention to any of the feedback you're getting. There is no obligation for the, the government to listen to any comments coming back. Public consultation is not really happening. And there was a big issue from the very beginning, I know I kind of digress, but the 2006 uh, Strategic Infrastructure Act, it brought in the fact that, uh, you know, for these big projects, they would always go to board planola. So you could say, well, we weren't consulted right uh, in the beginning at a county level. We can appeal on the issues we raise at a public consultation phase to board planola, which would be an independent body. But now these big projects and LNG terminals are specifically mentioned in the legislation, I think, they go directly to Ambor Planola. And the only way to, you could say, oh, by the way, but when you're um, applying for an extension of the what was now an expired project to resurrect it for this new plan to import frac gas from America, you know, we raised the issue, but you haven't taken on board the Climate Act, you know, the, the Paris Accord of 2015, to only challenge that in a public consultation. So we raise it at the public consultation phase, but the only way to challenge it is through the courts. And so there seems to be, rather than following the spirit of the law, I think the law does exist to have the procedures in place where there is public consultation, but they're constantly playing the system. So they're actually tightening the laws, which is avoiding public consultation. So now the, the new heads of bill that are gone for the new Planning Act wanted now to be able to have the right to appeal in court because we went to court with the help of the Friends of the Irish Environment. So we took the legal case to challenge the extension of planning, which got referred to the European Court of Justice. So they're only, rather than looking at the problem and saying, hold on, these guys have raised a serious problem here, a serious issue, they just don't want it to happen again. And uh, Senator Ned O'Sullivan, you know, one of our lovely senators in the Dáil, who comes from this Dáil, he said we should make the laws tighter to soften our cough, is what he said. And that's exactly what's been proposed by, is it Owen Murphy in the planning bill now to make it, that now you would have to have a hundred people, a member of an NGO, to be able to challenge in the courts any decision. You would have had to be in existence for three years. But what about when some issue like this comes up? How can you create a group to challenge something? And so they're constantly avoiding complete public consultation at any level. Mm -hmm. So public consultation, to me, it's written into the legislation. 
which we have uh, transposing of the European directives, the SEA directive especially, and the Aras Convention, public participation directive. These are all very important. The, the, the rules are there, but we're just spending energy trying to avoid the spirit of those rules as well. And so it's a constant battle between the NGOs and the government to find ways where we can challenge something. I think the penny is dropping that something has to be done. As Johnny explained, environmental democracy plays an integral part in combating climate change. In Ireland, the Aarhus Convention ensures state transparency and provides opportunities for community participation in environmental decision-making. However, the proposals contained in the 2019 Housing Planning and Development Bill could potentially restrict environmental democracy and mobilisation within environmental movements. We asked Brian Cuthbert, an active campaigner from Not Here, Not Anywhere, about the difficulties this could bring for community-based groups. It's a very blatant attack on democracy, really. I mean, raising challenges against these projects isn't as easy as liking a tweet or whatever. It's a lot of work, and nobody does it without legitimate concerns. Like, it's zero fun. Um, it's, it's no crack whatsoever. So to say that this is to reduce illegitimate challenges is complete nonsense. Uh, pe- people don't go to the effort of raising a formal complaint for the laugh. Like, uh, Rachel Usson did a nice article on this for Stand.ie and goes into quite a bit of detail Um but for a group like you're not here, not anywhere, there's essentially uh, three major elements to this. The first is cost. So under the Aarhus Convention, it tries to safeguard democratic challenges by not making procedures prohibitively expensive. Uh, this new bill would increase the cost ceiling to five thousand euro for individuals or up to ten grand for groups. I, I can tell you now, not here, not anywhere does not have ten grand at our disposal. So. Unless we could rally up huge public engagement, this is a prohibitive price tag. Um, also, a lot of solicitors that act in these types of cases would do so on a, a no-win, no-charge basis. But under Owen Murphy's bill, the max that you'd stand to win is capped at €40,000. So even if you were guaranteed to win your case, you may still find yourself in the red for taking on a case that the courts basically said you were correct to take on. So yeah, that's cost. The second major element is the age of your organisation or like how long you've been around. So up to now, in order to take a planning case to court, an NGO needs to be in existence for a minimum of 12 months, whereas under this, new, under this new bill, it'll need to have existed for the last three years. So if you read the IPCC report on climate change in 2018, the one that said we had, at the time, 12 years to avoid the most damaging effects of climate change, if you read that in 2018 and decided to get active and form a group, and that group's been working away since, campaigning, lobbying, whatever, they would not be allowed to take a case today. A lot of the environmental groups in Ireland wouldn't qualify under that requirement. So you'd nearly want a crystal ball to be able to form a group three years in advance of wanting to take a case. And the third major element is the size of your group. You need at least 100 affiliated members. So like that's a lot. We certainly don't have that. Yes, I think those consultation issues probably relate as well to the complaint that you've made to the Ombudsman and to the Commission because if an SEA is not being performed then it's basically precluding any kind of public consultation, participation on the issue which I would say could be seen as a democratic deficit. Yeah, I think this is going to end up anyway with a communication to the Aarhus Compliance Committee. Yeah, it will have to. Yes. And you see, there's another problem as well then. In Ireland, there are three different plans. One was for to have an LNG terminal in Cork to import gas from, I think it's down in the southern states. And there's a third plan that is kind of in the ideation phase. It's at Isla McGee for the gas storage facility that they're planning to dig up under Isla McGee to dig up salt caverns and store gas. So they were having this idea with Costain to import gas by tanker, possibly into what they've now bought as Belfast, Hamlin and Wolf. So there's a constant flow of, it's like the Wild West. Occupation is nine-tenths of the law. It's like the gold rush. The new gold rush is frack gas. So if you can build the terminals, build the infrastructure, you get ahead of government legislation. We're always one step behind them because the fossil fuel lobby has such funds. It's like an unlimited amount of funds that you're you're always playing catch up. And in the States, what was very interesting is that they managed to do all this fracking in the States. But now for the last 10 or 15 years, 
years, the medical records and the medical consequences at a large scale are catching up. And now they're saying they're able to prove, but it's 10 years later or 15 years later, the real damage and the poisoning that's happened over that time. So the frack gas world is now finding that it's almost like a Ponzi scheme. It takes huge financial investment to invest in the infrastructure. They get a lot of money the first year or two and then they've got to invest more. So it's like it could have a bubble effect The only way you can get more shareholder buy-in to these bigger projects is to keep expanding. And whereas you could understand it from an energy security perspective in the States, if it's now to keep constantly expanding and expanding, that's the only way they can keep getting shareholder buy-in. But now the European Investment Bank, they're pulling back funding of fossil fuel infrastructure projects, fossil fuel projects. And the message that's been given out is that that's a problem from a financial perspective. But So that's the game we're playing. Mm. You're you're fighting really big legal head uh, financial heads and they're just developing plans and projects they have no interest in the climate and as Mark Ruffler said they lie they cheat and you are trying to make that one step say hold on actually the emperor is not wearing any clothes and that's what we're looking for that's such a good analogy to make but the one thing I didn't say was that this latest campaign is actually based on science and the real issue was in August this year Professor Robert Hout of Cornell University in New York he had a peer-reviewed scientific research published which said that of the increase in methane emissions worldwide over the last 10 years one third of that has come from fracking in America and methane accounts has an 87 times higher global warming potential than carbon dioxide that when you import methane into Ireland it's 44% dirtier than coal so you might as well keep if you think you're going to do something for the climate you could keep Money Point coal burning power station open in Clare instead of closing that and bringing in frac gas. So all these issues are based on science and they're not based on nimbyism. It's just because we're local, we became informed on the issues. Johnny mentioned Professor Robert Howarth, a leading expert on LNG, who appeared before the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Climate Action, where he emphasised that from the standpoint of climate change, LNG is a very poor fuel choice. We asked Jesse to explain some of the scientific reasoning behind this viewpoint. There is a couple of reasons why liquefied natural gas is a poor fuel choice. Aside from the political hypocrisy of banning fracking in Ireland and then subsequently importing fracked gas from other countries, we can consider the scientific implications of using um, gas as a fuel source. So one of the main considerations is the energy required to produce fracked liquefied natural gas. Hydraulic fracturing or fracking is uh, the process of drilling down to the earth and then putting a solution under extremely high pressure into the bedrock to release the gas inside. So it's a very energetically and economically costly process. And then after that, considerable energy is spent liquefying the gas, so making it from a gas to a liquid. And then even more energy is required to ship that fuel over a body of water as large as the Atlantic from Texas, down to Ringiskiddy or down to Shannon. Then another consideration is that methane is the main component of natural gas. And compared to carbon dioxide, one molecule of methane does between 86 to 100 times more global warming in a 20-year period. Methane is now responsible for about 20% of overall global warming since the Industrial Revolution began. And when we extract gas, and it has to travel so far from the point of extraction to the point of combustion, leakage of that methane becomes a really considerable problem in terms of risk of global warming. But overall, the main scientific and logical reason that LNG is a poor choice is because we don't have time to scrape the bottom of the barrel for these residual fossil fuels anymore. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there is no pathway to remain within 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming that is compatible with the expansion of the natural gas industry. But just to put it into simple terms, frankly, the longer it takes for us to transition to energy systems which don't make climate change worse, is going to be measured in lives lost to things like floods, um, more severe and more regular storms and wildfires. And if we invest money in this LNG infrastructure, that is less money going into renewable energy development and we just don't have time for that so obviously you've put a lot of work research and time into the project it's gonna take not just law but science and also collaboration it's not an isolated issue you mentioned a similar situation in belfast and then also in cork and and you also mentioned friends of the irish environment so how do you see safety before lng fitting in with the broader campaigns within ireland 
You see, what I see now from our point of view is that we realise that the government has said that an LNG terminal might not be used for frack gas. You could bring in seagrass, sea gas. I nearly said seagrass, but it's sea gas. <laughs> uh, that's what uh, the Antishuk said. But these projects were promoted by the developer saying we're going to bring it from uh, Pennsylvania, which would be frack gas. So the problem is we're beginning to realise now that um, the European Commission has also said it hasn't been proved that it's going to be frack gas. The promoter could bring it from somewhere else. And you realise they're start playing with words again. So our from the anti-fracking movement in Ireland, which has thousands of followers and lots of groups, they realise as well, when we're talking together now, that frack gas is coming into Ireland. It will be coming in via LNG terminals. So that's the real buy-in that we have there. So the joined-up problem, the joined-up issue that we've found in common with all the groups is that LNG terminals are the means for bringing in fracked gas into Ireland. And if we allow fracked gas to come in by, by boat, it's only a very short step before we say, hold on now, wouldn't it be better for the environment? As Quadrillo said in the UK, when they were started fracking there recently, they said fracking happens in America. Now to save us, uh, to do better, less damage to the, to the climate, by all that um, emissions we would create by shipping it all the way from America, we should frack in the UK. And really, the fracking ban in Ireland is only a moratorium. So if we allow frack gas into Ireland by ship, through the LNG terminals, we will, we will have fracking back within two or three years. I can guarantee it. So that's, what we've been doing. that's how we've all linked up, really, because we're all realising there is yes, a big issue going on here. Definitely. And I think we'll need collaboration. Yeah, I've realised the big issue, what we've realised as well, is that uh, when you're on your own uh, in one local group fighting a campaign, you can be isolated. But when you meet all the other groups and network with them, you realise we're all coming up with the same issue over and over again. And uh, the common networking uh, issues that are raised, it makes us more powerful together than individuals. The inclusion of 32 new gas infrastructure projects on the fourth PCI list illustrates that the European Union considers natural gas an important energy source for the future. By contrast, there appears to be considerable public opposition to these projects. We asked Jesse, what is the current state of the European anti-fossil fuel movement and where is it headed? And whether she sees Ireland having an important role to play. The European anti-fossil fuel movement is really broad and quite diverse in its different approaches. So some countries in Western Europe have really strong grassroots movements against the fossil fuel industry and will do direct actions and political lobbying to achieve change. In some countries like the Netherlands, the fossil fuel industry is being confronted successfully through the legal system and some European countries actually have green parties who are effective policy makers and do a lot within the institutional and political systems. Then on the other hand of the spectrum, the Austrian Green Party are doing some very dubious deals for anti-immigration legislation with the far-right party of their country, which demonstrates the disparity and heterogeneity of the European anti-fossil fuel movement because whereas um, most most of it would be quite progressive, some of it can be quite the opposite. Here in Ireland we have sort of a funny position in the whole picture of the anti-fossil fuel movement because on one hand we have done some very impressive things like banning fracking in the Republic, disinvesting our state investment fund from fossil fuel projects and most recently in September of 2019 the government announced a ban on future oil exploration but a lot of those things are cosmetic so we don't really have anything considerable to frack in Ireland so there's no love lost there. Divesting from fossil fuels comes across as a bit of a media stunt um, considering we had 300 million invested in fossil fuels but we continue to subsidize the fossil fuel industry by 2.5 billion euros every single year and finally although we have banned offshore exploration drilling for oil um, it's difficult if not impossible to be sure if an offshore well will contain gas as opposed to oil so effectively nothing's changed ireland does play a role in that it could be an example um, Ireland has territorial waters that are almost 10 times the size of our territorial 
of land and with the uh, porcupine basin and if we could capitalize on that for wind and wave energy we could set a very strong precedent for europe um to decarbonize our energy systems however plans for some of the largest wind farms in the world down in waterford can't push ahead without the support of the locals and without considering alternative employment for fishermen who might lose their sources of income uh, we need to head towards a unified anti-fossil fuel movement in europe because our energy mix is inherently intimately connected for example we get a lot of our gas from britain and britain currently imports most of its gas from either norway or the netherlands or via connector which is filled with gas from uh, russia and a mixture of other places so it's really all very intimately connected and we probably need to move towards a unified position. Like Safety Before LNG, Not Here, Not Anywhere is a grassroots campaign against the development of LNG terminals in Ireland. However, the repercussions of using fracked gas will have a vast global reach. We asked Brian about the interplay between direct action in Ireland and source country communities such as the USA. How important is it? I mean, it's great. Like We've worked, with, we've worked in solidarity with activists from across Europe um, and I always find it inspiring to see them standing up to and, and even sometimes overcoming challenges, especially in countries with, with less lenient law enforcement than, than what we have in Ireland. I met a Russian activist last summer who was jailed for, for going on a school strike. Um, but yeah, I mean, like more importantly than solidarity with other European groups, there's probably a stronger internal solidarity within Ireland and not just with other environmental groups, but any group that's fighting, fighting an injustice. Um, on the topic of fracking in the US, it's been particularly heartening to work with uh, activists who are based there. So we've worked with New Yorkers, people from Pennsylvania, um, who are seeing increased numbers of earthquakes and, and like their water tables being poisoned due to fracking. We held an anti-LNG rally in Cork before Christmas and we're joined by, I'm, I'm going to butcher her name now, but um, Rebecca Hinojus who works for Sierra Club. So she lives in, in Brownsville, Texas, and her community are fighting fracking in the Rio Grande Valley. The gas frack there would be earmarked for shipping to Cork. Um, so if they were to build a Cork LNG site. Um, so it's great to know that there's people on the other side of the water who are in our corner too. We asked Tammy in America what she would most want to communicate to the people of Ireland or to those of other countries considering importing gas fracked in the USA. This is what she said. Aside from the ethical dilemma of supporting an industry that harms human health, consumes trillions of gallons of fresh water, contaminates soil, surface water, and aquifers, and releases massive amounts of methane, which exacerbates the global climate crisis, investing in and relying on this unstable industry by importing its end product is not going to result in good returns. Those of us experiencing the harmful impacts on the ground need the solidarity of the international community to boycott and divest from this dangerous industry. The majority of the profit made in the unconventional gas development industry is in exporting the end product. Everything that the international community can do to boycott that end product and divest from the industry and its network of financial support contributes to our resistance work on the ground. Every time they cannot sell their product, they have less opportunity to destroy our local environment and endanger the climate. At the moment, the COVID-19 pandemic is taking a terrible toll on humanity and is likely to put a financial strain on all parts of society. However, it has been suggested that it could be an inflection point in how we tackle climate change and sustainability. We asked Brian if he had any thoughts about the implications the pandemic could have on the energy market, and if he thought an economic crisis could bring about the much-needed re-evaluation of the current approach to energy supplies. It's hard to say. Uh, I was reading The Economist last week. They did a, an article on how in previous crashes, so like the fall of the, the USSR, the financial crash in 2008, um, there was obviously a, a large reduction in global emissions, um, but then it soon spiked again in the years to follow. Um, so yeah, this is this is temporary, like it's not going to last. When it comes to the fossil fuel industry, I'd encourage all of your listeners to look at a report conducted by Claudia Daly for Friends of the Earth that came out this week. Um, actually, if you do one thing today, just read the executive summary. So the report looks at how much Ireland spends each year subsidising the fossil fuel industry. And we spend two and a half billion euro every year propping up this industry. Globally, over five trillion 
like with a T, $5 trillion is spent in fossil fuel subsidies. Like this industry already relies heavily on our money, yet it pays out massive bonuses to its executives. And now we're seeing calls for bailouts of emissions heavy industries like the fossil fuel industry, like the airline industry, etc. So rather than throw hard-earned taxpayer money at them and then see it used to detrimentally affect us in the long run, there is an opportunity to put reins on some of these companies. Like obviously, I'm not saying we don't support the jobs of those at risk, but if we do end up bailing out these industries, let's slap some significant conditions on those bailouts. And let's not see those bailouts go the way of previous bailouts and be used for bonuses. Like, this isn't free money. These should be loans that these companies need to pay back. The interest on these loans should be very high, but with terms linked to emission reductions, so that it makes strong financial sense for these companies to reduce emissions. So, like, if they carry on as normal, they face extremely high interest rates. But if they can reduce emissions significantly, their interest rates will reduce significantly. So you're creating a competitive advantage to the companies who are most effective at this. And so for once, emissions reductions will be strongly incentivized via profitability, like a, a positive race to the bottom, if you get me. Will a financial crisis succeed where ecological ones have failed? History would suggest it's unlikely. It won't just happen all by itself, but it may be our best shot to make real progress. So for the moment, we hold the cards essentially it's taxpayers money that they want but we must all pressure our politicians into realizing that it's our money not theirs to spend and it needs to be spent in our best interest will we do this who knows but it's certainly changed the power dynamic yeah let's hope we don't miss the opportunity to take some serious positives from all the negatives we're having to endure at the moment as brian said only time will tell whether or not the current crisis will have any lasting positive effects on the environment as for the anti-fracked gas movement, not even a global pandemic can stop it in its tracks. Since the initial interview, Johnny from Safety Before LNG informed us that there is now national consensus in the doll, with 75 TDs standing up against the importation of fracked gas. Prime Minister Leo Varadkar of Fine Gael and Michal Martin of Fianna Fáil have also announced that they are against the construction of the Shannon LNG terminal. What's more is over 100 national and international NGOs have grouped together to move the campaign forward. And the European Court of Justice found the planning permission for the Shannon LNG terminal to be invalid, stating that it should not have been extended without an environmental impact assessment. Cassie, Colin and I are currently collaborating with Safety Before LNG with support from Future Proof Claire and Love Leitrim to draft and explain the EU and international law justifications for a legislative ban on importing fracked gas into Ireland. On behalf of the team, I would like to extend my sincere gratitude to all of our guests for sharing their wealth of knowledge and expertise. In particular, we would like to thank Safety Before LNG for collaborating with us on this project throughout the year and Dr Maeve O'Rourke, Director of the International Human Rights Law Clinic, who couldn't have been more supportive. If you would like to get involved with the anti-fracked gas campaign, you can visit safetybeforelng.ie or nothere-not-anywhere.com and make sure to follow the groups on Twitter for the latest updates. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you found this podcast to be as insightful and inspiring as we did.